Welcome to Sitka Tells Tales, a live storytelling event based in Sitka, Alaska. Tonight is the second installment of the annual theme, Wet Feet, stories on, under, and of the sea. This event was recorded live at the Beak Restaurant on August 10th, 2018, and was hosted by Art Change Inc. in conjunction with the Sitka Seafood Festival. Your host this evening is Ellen Frankenstein. Aww. Are you ready to hear some amazing stories? Okay, so this is Sitka Tells Tales. And it's brought to you tonight by Art Change Inc., the nonprofit you're not supposed to know about, but you're supposed to know about what we do. And in collaboration with the Sitka Seafood Festival. And we always collaborate with Raven Radio. We have five wonderful stories where people have thought and sweated and considered what they're going to tell you in six minutes. We also have some beautiful music by Ted and Gary that is thematic and is a story itself. But I'm going to introduce our first brave teller. It's Lauren Bell. Lauren grew up in Homer, Alaska, and has called Sitka her home since 2014. She has studied Alaska's marine ecosystems from the Arctic to Cook Inlet to Southeast. She is currently a PhD student at the University of California, Santa Cruz, studying the impacts of ocean acidification and warming on Sitka's nearshore communities. Her story, The Student and the Squid Study, is about a young biology undergrad who leaves the safety of the lecture hall to embark on a groundbreaking expedition to study jumbo squid. Thanks, Ellen. So, by midway through my college career, my only experience as a biology student was sitting in 400-person lecture halls, surrounded by stressed-out pre-med students who were furiously taking notes, while I was daydreaming about the ocean, because I wanted to be a marine scientist. So somehow, in my junior year of college, I got the attention of a rather eccentric squid biologist who was planning a trip to the Sea of Cortez, to study Humboldt squid. Now, if you haven't heard of them, Humboldt squid are some of the largest squid in the world. They're also called jumbo squid. They get to be as big as I am from the top of their fins to the end of their arms with their tentacles outstretched half again as far. And they're incredible animals. They'll eat anything that they come across, including each other. They can be cannibals. And they rip their food apart using a razor sharp beak at the center of their mouth, just like an octopus. Now, the cool thing about this expedition was that this professor had been working with National Geographic who wanted to figure out how to attach a camera to a Humboldt squid. This was 2009, bear in mind, so this is before the existence of GoPros. So this thing, this camera they wanted to attach was a rather clunky thing. It was maybe six inches long, a couple inches high. And they'd been successful in attaching these to lions by putting them on collars, to whales by attaching them with suction cups, but they'd never done so with a squid. And my professor was really excited about this, and he decided the best person to figure out how to run this brand new experiment was a 20-year-old who had never had any research experience before. (laughs) So the first thing we had to do is figure out how to attach this thing to a squid. Now bear in mind, squid are invertebrates. That means they have no bones, so no hard structures to really attach this giant camera to. They also move through the ocean by filling their entire body cavity with water and then squirting it out through a siphon repeatedly to propel themselves through the water. So they're constantly changing shape. So how do you attach something to them securely? 
What we figured out was if you take a child's rash guard, kind of a nylon spandex material, and you cut off the arms, you have this flexible tube that you can slide over the body of a squid that will expand and contract with that squid's body and not inhibit its movement. And I remember the one that we grabbed because it said little surfer across the front of it. <laughs> so we had our little surfer swimsuit in hand and we headed to the Sea of Cortez. And I remember walking onto this big research vessel and the engine starting and the smell of the diesel and the loud rumble and the busyness of everyone running around the deck and just being so overwhelmed and excited. And that first night, night falls, we hang big lights over the sides of the boat and everyone starts fishing for these squid. And we use these lures, they're about a foot and a half long, fluorescent lures, you charge them by holding up to the light. They have barbs all the way up them. We're fishing with them basically on a big halibut rod. When you get one on, you have to reel it in as fast as possible because these squid will attack each other and tear each other apart. So everyone's furiously fishing to pull these squid on board. And when we start catching them, my advisor goes, now's the time, let's deploy that camera. So I run inside and I'm so excited that I'm trying to program this thing. And the critical thing about this is that to get this data back after we deploy it on a squid, we have to recover the camera. So I'm programming it so that it will release from the squid about an hour after we deploy it. And I'm trying to program it, and I am so high on adrenaline, I keep messing it up. Keep messing it up, and I'm sweating, and I know they're catching squid, and finally I get it programmed, and I run outside with this camera in my hand and the little surfer swimsuit, and my advisors, meanwhile, caught a squid, and he's down in this little zodiac that's sitting next to this big research vessel, and they've got a big cooler in it, and they've got this big squid in the cooler, and it's thrashing around, it's throwing water everywhere. My advisor and another person who works on the boat is holding that squid down, and I jump down into that zodiac, and I start sliding that swimsuit over the body of the squid, and my advisor reaches up to help me pull that camera in place, and all of a sudden, all of the water in the cooler turns red. And I look over and my advisor holds up his arm and sure enough, his entire arm is totally lacerated. He'd been bitten several times by that squid's beak. He hadn't even felt it, it was so sharp. And I'm like, holy cow! And he goes, keep putting that camera on! I'll go get it fixed! And so he jumps out of the boat back up to have the captain sew him up. And another guy jumps in, holds down the squid. I keep pulling that camera down into place. I cinch it in place, and we throw the squid out into the ocean, and it swims away with the camera. And I remember the adrenaline and the excitement, and the excitement to see what we were going to get back. We'd never seen images of squid in their natural habitat from this species. And so I get back on the boat, I check my advisor's sign, and I go up to the bridge, and I get in place with my headphones on and the VHF antenna because I'm going to listen for the beeps of that returning camera when it hits the surface. And I'm listening and I'm listening and I'm listening for an hour, for two hours, for three hours. And that adrenaline turns to dread because that camera is not coming back. I either programmed it wrong, that squid swam too far, something happened. And I just realized that was the end of my career as a marine scientist. <laughs> I mean, not only was this entrusted to me, but it was a priceless piece of equipment. I mean, it was custom built, one of a kind. These National Geographic engineers had probably spent hundreds and hundreds of hours building it, and I'd lost it. And I walked down to the lower decks with tears in my eyes to find my advisor holding his arm. <laughs> and I said, I'm sorry, I, I lost that thing. I, I screwed it up. 
And he said, you know, it wouldn't be groundbreaking research if it was easy. <laughs> Thank you. I get to introduce the next speaker. Vivian Mork is from the Raven Moiety. She has a master's degree in cross-cultural studies with an emphasis in indigenous knowledge systems. She is an ethnobotanist, traditional foods educator, storyteller, and writer who currently works as a guide. She spends most of her days moving stuff from one spot to another on her boat. She lives on with her partner and their two dogs. She has many stories to tell, so we're excited to hear which one she chooses for tonight. Thank you. Chinese, Hawaiian, Sami, Irish. And uh, as some of you people in here who know Tlingit people, that's just Tlingit for hello. But I do want to start this story off definitely with uh, It does mean, please forgive me if anything I do will offend anybody or if I do this incorrectly. And I actually know I'm going to because we only have six minutes to tell a story. And I don't know clink of people who tell a story in six minutes. Uh, so I'm going to do my best. But in the Tlingit language, my name is Yeik or cute little raven in English. My name is Vivian Mork and I'm from the Raven Moiety. I am uh, a child of the Tequedi or the Brown Bear people. And then I'm a grandchild of the Kaguantan or the wolf people. And then I come from a very large multicultural family. So I'm also Chinese, Hawaiian, Sami, and Irish. And uh, I was born and raised a little farther south from here, you know, on Wrangell. And between Wrangell and Sika, there's the Kuyu Island area. And uh, how many of you know of Devilfish Bay? A uh, few people. Uh, so uh, the Devilfish Bay is famous with our family. My family traveled there many, 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 many years ago to go to fish camp and to go do a lot of dry fish. And uh, back then we would catch them in the fish traps and then uh, pull them out. And, and the whole family was cleaning them and slicing them up thin and hanging them up to dry. And on the hot days, they would go and they would open up the front and you could just see this glistening red color from the beach, just beautiful, magnificent red. And when it was all full and all the work had been done, three of the brothers decide to go out hunting. And they get in the canoe and they go out seal hunting. And uh, they had a horrible time. They didn't get anything. The whole day, everything went wrong. And when they started making their way back to the village, they started to see remnants of the village floating now in the ocean. They saw parts of canoes they saw parts of baskets. They saw all these things just floating and not a sign of any of their family. And they got to the beach and not a single person was left. And there was this sticky slime all over the beach and all over everything. And they stayed there for four days trying to figure out what had happened and looking for any sign of anything that can happen. All they knew was something took it into the ocean. And so they had a plan. And they sent the youngest brother up onto the steep cliff up on the side and uh, to be a lookout for them. And in our culture, we always try to leave at least somebody behind to remember the story. So they went up to the top and the two brothers went out into the canoe and they had a lot of rocks there in the canoe and they had sharpened four young spruce trees into spears. Each brother had two each. 
and they go down and they start throwing all these rocks into the ocean and yelling and making all of this noise and the little brother starts yelling from up above there's a monster there's a monster coming and this huge dark deep shadow just starts coming up to the surface and all of a sudden each tentacle starts to come around the side of the boat and the brothers start stabbing and stabbing and stabbing every tentacle but this creature was so huge they couldn't fight it and as the beak started to come up and around the two brothers had to make a choice and they dove into the creature to kill it from the inside out and That brother watched all of this happening and he watched his brothers go back down into the deep and he waited there and they didn't resurface again and he cried and he cried and he cried and when he gathered himself back together, he went down the way to go find another village to find some more help and he found some people there and uh, they came back with him and on the way back, they found the devil fish on the beach and they cut it open and they found the two brothers inside. And still to this day, there's some people who fear the Devilfish Bay area. But our people have been here for more than 10,000 years, and we know that this ocean is dark and deep, and there's still mysteries down there. And this ocean is non-negotiable, and it is meant to be respected. Gnoschish. I'm supposed to introduce the next person, uh, Ryan. Ryan Harris is from Sitka, Alaska, as well as all of his family. And Ryan also works as a tour guide for about 12 years and pursued other fields in the down season for fishing to mental health. He loves the rain and outdoors, so Sitka is perfect for him. The title of the story he's telling is Cold, Wet, and Angry, and he seems to love those elements even after this experience that he's going to share. I'm Ryan, and as the story said, I love being outdoors, uh, and this is actually an outdoor adventure story. So I think I was 19, yeah, I was 19, and I had just started my first season fishing. So yeah, made a lot of money, kind of. We were out fishing, and it was the end of the season, and it was a really, really bad year that year. But we finally like hit gold. Like It was like we were m- going to make money that day. We had like three fish totes full of fish it was great and then we look up from our work our uh power troller just died and we're like oh wow we're in the middle of a storm (laughs) so that's when my skipper is like all right i'm gonna drive the boat you need to start hauling that stuff up so i start pulling it up all by hand because our hydraulics had died Uh, and we were really really deep at that so it took quite a bit of time and finally when we had everything pulled up we were about three miles offshore off of cruise off and i came back into the cabin right as we were coming down a 16-foot wave, and we speared right into the back of another wave. And at that point, we weren't in any danger, but half the boat was underwater. But we were were draining, and we were coming back up. And then, instead of hitting us directly in the back like a wave should have, it hit us right in the corner. So all the weight and all the water and all the fish totes just went to the front there on the left side, and we just whoop. And I was really fortunate to be standing by the door because at this point, the boat was, took less than five seconds to turn over on its uh, side, and I was like standing by the door, and I was like, oh, the boat's not supposed to work like this. And I pull open the door just as we finish going all the way over. And at that point, we were standing up on the roof. Water was coming in. My captain was trying to call on the radio, and I was like, well, that's not going to work. It's underwater. So I grab him, and I throw him out the door. 
And then I, I start like throwing other stuff I think we might need. Uh, and I grab my survival suit and I was like, all right, I got everything. I'm an, I've spent enough time under here. And I start going out and then my survival suit gets caught on the door. So I yank it free and I come up to the bottom of the boat where boat's completely upside down. And I look at my hand and all I have is the handle. So I was like, oh, okay. Uh, and at that point, the adrenaline had hit me so hard. I wasn't panicking. I wasn't, if anything, I was enjoying it because I'm like, yeah, what's next? And then my captain, thankfully, had like the state of mind is like, we're in real trouble. And he's like telling me, I got to kick off your shoes. You got to keep pedaling. And I was like, just kind of floating there. I was like, yeah, that sounds good. So I kick off my brand new $80 pair of extra tops. I'm like, so long. And then I, he pulls me up on this boat. And he's like trying to get it focused. Like, we need to get a plan. We need to know what we're going to do. And I'm just like, it's raining. <laughs> and I'm cold. Now, the boat starts to go down because the engines are the heaviest part. So the bow is just like lifting up. It's going all Titanic. And we are climbing on, just trying to stay out of the water as long as we can. And by like the grace of God, one of the fish totes emptied itself out and just kind of like flipped up. And I was like, that looks a lot more comfortable than the ocean. So I jump in. My captain tries to get in, not working. He goes away to get on something else. We separate. I learn later that he survives, so he finds his survival suit, so he's okay. But we're going apart, and he's, you know, the captain, so his, his boat just sank. He's not feeling too happy. And he's apologizing, and the adrenaline was still in me real bad, so I was like, we're not going to die! <laughs> Embarrassingly, the last thing I almost said to him was like, F you, we're going to be fine! And that's the last thing I say to him before I see him again. And like then that's when we separate. And that's when like the fear sets in. It's like, oh, the adrenaline's gone. And like, I'm three miles from shore and no one knows we had just sunk. It's like two o'clock in the afternoon. This sucks. And I go through all the stages of grief, crying, I like denial, like this isn't happening, it's a bad dream. And then like after like through some of the phases, I'm like, all right, I'm in this tote. I, I accept that. That's fine. And then I get real mad. It's like, why the f I'm going to die in a fish tote. This is not happening. So I start like raging out about the smallest little things. Like a bird flies by. He's like, yeah, you, you fly. You're lucky I can't get up there. And then the whole time is I was out there for about 26 hours before I was picked out. And the most of that time I was in severe hypothermia. And severe hypothermia is stop feeling cold pretty quick. And you get this weird, warm sensation. And all you want to do is nap. And you know if you nap, anyone who knows like what severe hypothermia is, if you close your eyes, you're going to die. So I'm like, okay, don't close my eyes. And that's probably why I got so angry, because I started hallucinating weird stuff. Like I'm still not sure if I actually saw a whale or I just hallucinated a whale. But I remember smelling fish when he came up and did a blow spout. And I was like... You're ruining my day! <laughs> and that's how that happened. And then, about there for 26 hours, and then a fishing boat found me. And I think actually someone here is. Yeah, there you are. She saw me. And she's out there, and she saw me. Thank you, by the way. And, I, and at that point, I see, like, I see the boat coming. I'm like, yeah! I'm so out of here! And then I see the helicopter coming. It's like, oh, I'm getting a fancy ride out of here. <laughs> and then I see the diver jump into the water, and he swims over to me, right? And he's like, hey, how are you doing? And this is the proudest moment of my life. And I was like, sitting there real cold, like, 
can I bum a ride? <laughs> and then I was so cold and my teeth were chattering so much that my proudest moment just went by. And he's like, huh? <laughs> and then I went from so happy to angry that I had gone through all of this and no one heard my joke. And I was like, get me out of here! And he's like, oh, okay. Like he'd never seen someone angry to be rescued before. So he pulls me out and then he gets me in the helicopter and they fly me back. And I felt like a king at this point. I had a heated sleeping bag. I couldn't walk, so I was being carried around. I felt like a king. It was awesome. And that's the story. We are going to switch modes a little bit and hear story in a different way. First, I'm going to introduce Ted, and then he's going to introduce Gary. So Ted, Ted Howard, was raised in Michigan and escaped to the West in his 20s, teaching special ed and social studies in Montana and Alaska. Julie, his other half, and Ted have lived in Sitka since 1986 and could not imagine living anywhere else. He's now retired, but very busy. He spends his time working the yard on sunny days and playing guitar on rainy ones and creating like 5,000 events in Sitka. So I'd like to introduce you to Gary Gowker, and he's the best harmonica player I have ever played with. Not only is he a harmonica player, he's a, a wonderful machinist, and he's a, a harmonica mechanic. He can take harmonicas apart and fine-tune them, put them back together, and uh, custom-make them, and he sends them out to people all over the country. And, I, and I've known Gary since 88, and we've played together on and off since then. And uh, Gary, you want to tell him about this tune? I wrote this with my friend uh, Lee Asnan oh, several years back, and uh, we don't do it very often, so I had to, I'm having this young lady here hold the words up for me, actually, so, and anyway, so hopefully this will go okay. So uh, Ted is, uh, like Ellen said, has is one of the most generous people I've ever met. He's done more for uh, local music than, and many other things than anybody else I've I've ever known. So anyway, a big, big round for Mr. Ted Howard. So this is a, a song about a, a liveaboard, harbor life, and uh, the way things uh, might go wrong. And it has a chorus you all can sing along with if you want. my galley wrecked my brand new car all the folks down in the harbor say you've gone too far but that's all right that's all right that's all right baby that's all right oh that's all right you give me all your loving oh baby that's all right 
I gave you some money so you could pay the rent. Harbor masters at the door. You say it's all spent, but that's all right. That's all right. That's all right, baby. That's all right. That's all right. Oh, you give me all your loving, oh, baby. That's all right. Card, I should have given cash. I got the bill in the mail by credit ratings trash, but that's all right. That's all right. That's all right. Baby, that's all right. Oh, all right. You give me all your loving, oh, baby, that's all right. Honey, it's not your cooking that I love the most. Oh, that's all right. That's all right. Baby, that's all right. Oh, all right. Well, you give me all your loving. Oh, baby, that's all right. Like Elvis. That's all right. That's all right. That's all right. That's all right. Baby, that's all right. Well, that's all right. Mm, all right. That's all right. Oh, baby, that's all right. Well, that's all right. Oh, all right. Baby, that's all right. That's all right. Mm, all right. Oh, you give me all your loving. Baby, that's all right. Thank you. Mr. Ted Howard. The theme is wet feet. Stories in, under, above, and about the sea. And Ryan's going to introduce our next teller. Again, I want to thank the beak. I know we're crowding this place, but I love the feel of the beak. So thanks. Thank you, Renee, and family. Okay, Ryan? All right. So I'm introducing Leah. Her and her family have been in Sidka for about two years now, and she loves just participating in the community and just being involved and helping out however she can. She also really likes focusing on quality living with her kiddos, and she's going to be telling you guys the story of how she came from Oregon to Southeast Alaska. 
So here she is. So it was the summer of 2015. I had been living for the past 10 years at Brighton Bush Hot Springs. It was a community in Oregon, about 50 people, off-grid, remote by the lower 48 standards and the Willamette National Forest. My partner comes to me one day to let me know that his brother, who is a commercial fisherman here in Sitka, sent him an email um, letting him know of a job opportunity at a remote fish hatchery nearby. He was clearly interested, but I wasn't so sure. I really had not had any thoughts of Alaska in my whole life. I mean, I didn't know what it was about. And who lived at a remote fish hatchery in Alaska? All I could come up with was a bunch of drunks and or Christians. Like, I really, it just really wasn't my scene. So, but something about it kept bugging me and bugging me. And the thought about living in this remote community where you can only get there by boat or float plane was really kind of interesting to me. So in October of that same year, I found ourselves with our pickup truck packed to the gills, our kids stuffed in, jam crammed with all their belongings, and we were driving away down the gravel road from my beloved community, my community where I was supported on so many levels. I had my babies there, and honestly, it was my heart's home. We were driving away, and I felt this wave of disbelief and shock come over me, just thinking, what the hell am I thinking? I'm moving to this place where I have no idea what it's going to be like. But it was like the adventure of the unknown was more appealing to me than the safety and the comfort of what was familiar. So we drove on up to Bellingham, hopped on the ferry for a four-day, five-night trip up to Sitka, which was hell, by the way. Um, so when we got to Sitka, whew, we were relieved. We had about two or three days to recoup, to get all our belongings packed into fish totes and loaded onto a fishing boat called the Anita, which would take us down to Port Armstrong Fish Hatchery. We got on the boat the evening that we were supposed to leave. We were going to leave around 6 p.m. Due to weather, we are going to take the inside, which was a longer ride. So it was going to take about 24-ish hours to get there. 24 hours, I thought to myself, I was standing in the galley, this tiny little place with my kids and all our belongings. And this little stateroom we're supposed to stay in was no bigger than a closet, a bunk where my daughter was to stay on top, and me and my son, who was two at the time, sharing this tiny little bed thing. It wasn't that appealing to me to tell you the truth but anyway the kids went to bed early uh, I stayed up playing cards with my partner and I was starting to feel a little dizzy because the boat was starting to rock there was some weather coming in so I decided to go to bed if I was laying down flat what could go wrong right so I go to bed I wake, I'm woken up pretty soon by my son who's two at the time and he was nursing probably about every one and a half to two hours that night um, so I realized I wasn't going to get any rest that and with the rocking of the boat getting more and more intense and I'm wondering is this is this normal like is this what happens on these fishing boats out in the weather of Alaska in the middle of October and the engine is going in my ear and cupboards are slamming open and things are shifting and I'm just I'm scared literally I'm scared it reminded me of of childbirth to tell you the truth of like having absolutely no control over the situation at all and I had only faith in that it would have to end sometime like it had to end sometime right but when because then the puking began and it's puked and I puked and I puked and I had no idea what would come out of my body once all the food was gone but green this beautiful green like when you look at the mountains on a summer day and you see the patches of the emerald green fields up there it was it was a gorgeous color but I felt really shitty to tell you the truth so when morning came <laughs> I was a little more relieved because the sun came up there was hope right People started waking up. The crew came down from the upstairs into the galley, and I lay there on the bench in the galley sucking on a piece of ginger root, and I, I thought, maybe this is going to be okay, because finally we did reach Port Armstrong. 
And we just got off that boat, went straight to our house, and it was a great feeling. As we, me and my partner unpacked our things, and the kids, you know, it's like unpacking your things after you're moving, and you find your things you've had for years, but it's like Christmas. They're like new again. And everybody took this enjoyment of that. And that probably lasted for maybe three days. And then the reality of the situation set in. The reality of my grief that I was grieving the loss of this vibrant community that I lived in for this place in the middle of October was all the rain and the people there who were very kind and nice, but you know, it was a different scene. Everyone mostly kept to themselves and wondering how I was supposed to fit in there in this foreign um, culture, I guess. And what was I supposed to do with my kids who I seemed to be with 24 hours a day without any, any relief? Like my partner would come home from work, but you know, that wasn't really anything. So I had no social emotional outlets. And then there was the bears. You know, I couldn't let the kids run outside because there's bears out there, right? There's no way on this little boardwalk town by the maintenance shop, by the rusty equipment. So that was one of the hardest years of my life. But there is the silver lining. And I, I think of the gifts that we got from spending the year out there. And for me, it was the gift of going out in our skiff on a sunny day and being so close to the water in a Boston whaler. So, you know, you're really close to the water and seeing the movement and, the, and how alive the ocean really is. I never experienced that before. And seeing the whales swim by so close and all the little flocks of the seabirds, you know, skimming over the water like that. And then the mountains and there's nobody around you and you can really see and sense like how small you are in this world. And there's something greater than just what we are in, um, around us. So for my kids to be able to experience that at such a young age and to be able to keep that with them as they grow up and for myself too, um, yeah, that was the gift. Thank you. <laughs> Woo, okay. <laughs> I had a nightmare about doing this, so. We did great. Okay, next up is Umi Hoshijima. He was born in Japan, raised in California. He just earned his PhD researching ocean chemistry and marine biology in California and in Antarctica. But now he works as a postdoctoral researcher with Professor Kitty Croker at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Yumi is in Sitka for the summer months to look at ocean change biology in the coastal kelp forest in and around the Sound. He will be talking about a magical experience he had underwater during his PhD research while he was diving under sea ice in Antarctica. Thank you. So they say that if you're uh, the kind of person that loses their car in the supermarket you know, parking lot, you probably shouldn't be diving, ice diving in Antarctica. <laughs> and that's because when you're ice diving in Antarctica, the only way back out of the water is the same way you came in. It's that hole that you drilled in the ice. And so I was able to go down to Antarctica three times during grad school. So about three months out of the year, about three times. And it was down at McMurdo Station, which is the biggest station down there. It's also on one of the most southern coastlines in the world, where right in front of station, the ocean's frozen solid for six months out of the year. So we go out on this frozen ocean. You can drive out to your dive site and drill a big hole and go dive out of it. And we'd usually drag a big warm hut over this hole and sort of get to dive under Antarctic ice there. So I was down there as a marine biologist, but of course, you know, the marine biology there is incredible, but also just as someone who likes nature, it's just such an incredible place to be both topside and underwater. And one day I was lucky enough to be able to have 
finally sort of a fun dive. I'd been doing some work dives down there, but finally a time where I could just go to a cool spot and just sort of enjoy the scenery. They told me about this place, they called it Cape Evans Wall, and you go to this place in this, you know, arbor called Cape Evans, and you drop down the ice hole, and they said, hang a right when you get down there, and just keep swimming till you see the, see the thing, see the cool thing, right? <laughs> and I had no idea what that meant, but I was kind of playing cool. I'm like, yeah, the cool thing, I'll find it. And so I go out there with my buddy, we drive up to our sort of little hut on the sea ice, right? And you sort of get on, get on all your gear and drop in the water. And the first thing that you notice, of course, is the water is freaking cold. It's the, at the freezing point of salt water, which is 28 Fahrenheit. And it's a wa the water around the hole is pretty slushy. So you're sort of in this slush. Um, you feel it stinging your face. Your lips go immediately painfully numb. And also the ice is about six feet thick there. And so when you jump in the water, you're sort of in this little tunnel for a bit and you're sort of finding your way down, trying to get your bearings. But then you look down and it's some of the most brilliantly blue clear water you've ever seen. And that's sort of, I think, one of the sort of hidden dirty secrets of anywhere, you know, anywhere cold, right? Like even in Sitka in the winter times, the water gets really clear because it's pretty dark out most of the time. And so if you ever get a chance to dive here in the winter, it's similar where the water's incredibly clear. And down in Antarctica, it's even clearer. There's people that have said they've seen up to a quarter of a mile underwater. So it's pretty much just fades. You can see as far as you ever want to. So you're sort of, you come down this sort of claustrophobic tube, look down and you can see everything below you. You drop down to 80 feet. Above you is this solid ceiling of ice that's grown a little algae, so it's this yellow-green color. So it's sort of just this stained glass window above you that's filtering all this light through the blue water. So we drop down into this place, we hang that right, and we just start going, scooting along. And the whole time, of course, you're just super excited. It's an incredible place, but you know that that dive hole is the only way out. So it's almost like the child side of you being super psyched to be there. And then you have to be your own parent and be like, look around, make sure that thing's still where, where you think it is because you're actually so far close to the South Pole that compasses don't work. So you have to sort of navigate a little more by dead reckoning. And so we're going, we're going, it's been about five minutes. It's the furthest I've ever been from the dive hole, right? And I'm I'm not freaking out. I'm freaking out a little. And like my buddy seems fine with it. I'm acting cool. I'm just like, am I, have I missed it? Like I look ahead, there's nothing there. Look behind me, it's, you know, just what I saw. And like, am I cool? Like, did I miss the thing? Was it a prank? Am I really qualified enough to be here? You know, like ice diving in Antarctica. What am, how, how did I get here? And then I'm going, I'm kind of, you know, hearts pumping, feel it pounding through my head. And then all of a sudden I just hit this invisible wall in front of me, which is, it, I can't explain it in any other way. It's just, it looks like it's just ocean continuing in front of you, but then you just hit this wall. And I'm sure I look like a mime, I'm just doing this. <laughs> and then I kind of look to my right and I see that this, you can sort of just make out this wall continuing down as far as you can see. And what happened there is on land there, there's a glacier and that glacier sort of spilling out into the ocean there. So I'm just on the glacier wall underwater, but the ice is blue, the water's blue, and you just can't make that out. And so it, what looks like ocean in front of you is just this complete barrier. And you're sitting there and you're looking along it, you start make, it sort of starts making sense. You see the crystals of ice growing out of the wall, 
the water's so cold there that it spontaneously freezes on anything. And so there's rocks on the bottom covered in ice. There's fish that have frozen themselves into the rock, into this ice wall, right? These fish that have actually antifreeze in their blood so they shouldn't be frozen solid have somehow just become encased into this wall along with a few sea urchins, some weird little things. And it's just completely just a bizarre experience. And then, you know, we turn around after all this, we start heading slowly back to the dive hole and just sort of enjoying the experience. I have no idea what just happened to me, really. I'm sort of reeling from this. I think I kind of get why people left it hanging and didn't try to over explain it to me, I guess, like I did now. But <laughs> the sort of the sort of the, um, the sort of wrap it all up, the incredible sort of last part about this is since it's an ice hole that you have to get out of, you have to get out of the water one at a time and you have to wait for your buddy to come up the ice hole, climb up the ladder, get out of the way. And so you'll be in the water a few minutes completely alone when you get back to that hole. You have that right, the stained glass window ceiling above you, this clear water all around you. And it's pretty possible that nobody else is touching the Southern Ocean on that half of that continent at that point. Like, you know, those moments you have when you stop in the middle of a hike and you realize you can't hear anything. It's just you and nature or you stop your boat and there's no civilization around. It's like that, except I might have possibly had that whole half of Antarctica to myself, that water. And so that was sort of me enjoying just being underwater ice diving in Antarctica. So thank you. Wow. How many of you are going to be like diving under the ice in Antarctica? I like that, like the fish toad thing. I mean, I got to say that every time I do this and I've been doing this, I don't know, some years, I kind of fall in love with my storyteller. Sorry, Spencer. Um, just being taken to other worlds and re-seeing people who live in Sitka or who are visiting Sitka. That's why I love the storytelling. Because again, I feel like we're, I say this before, I feel like we're in kind of a fraught time where it's, you feel a little uncomfortable when you hear the news and what's been tweeted. But when you hear these stories, that they kind of ground you. They kind of make you feel connected to where you live and the, your neighbors. So if you see the people who have told these stories in the next weeks or months, say hello. Because like, this is kind of a know-your-neighbor thing. But now we're going to hear one more song. This, this song is called Fishing Widow Blues. She's leaving on a big old plane She said she won't be coming back this way again Well, I got loving on my mind But she got leaving on hers Well, I got loving on my mind But she's got leaving on hers She said you've been a fishing one too many times While I've been out working trying to make a dime Well, I got loving on my mind But she got leaving on hers well, I got loving on my mind, but she's got leaving on her. Well, I got loving on my mind, but she's got leaving on her. 
our freezer's full of fish, but our love grows cold. Just a fish and we don't mean rain. Oh, well, I got loving on my mind, but she got loving on hers. Well, I got loving on my mind, but she's got leaving on hers. Do the head. <laughs> just called and gave me a tip he said he saw a bigger boat tied up in my slip well i got loving on my mind but she got leaving on hers well i got loving on my mind but she's got leaving on hers Thank you, everybody. Fred Howard. Again, thanks to the Sitka Seafood Festival, to Rachel, because I was on the edge of whether I could actually fit this into life, to Alyssa for timing, for the beak, to all our tellers, and to do all the good work you do in life. Thank you for joining us for Sitka Tells Tales, a live storytelling event based in Sitka, Alaska. And thank you to our storytellers tonight, Lauren Bell, Vivian Mork, Ryan Harris, Leah Murphy, and Umi Hoshijima. Thank you also to our musicians, Ted Howard and Gary Gauker. Thank you also to KCAW and Beak Restaurant. Your host this evening was Ellen Frankenstein, and this event was hosted in conjunction with Art Change, Inc. and the Sitka Seafood Festival. 